But we're not meant to understand that. Yet. That's the truth. I mean, the reality of life is that we're not meant to understand it. So people who say they've got it figured out are trying to sell you something, Diane. I agree, but just just in case you haven't figured that out on your own, or in case you weren't the one have. who actually told me that. And, you know, just in case that any of those things are true or doesn't, not true. Doesn't Mr. Mike look a little them. precarious? No, this, it's no? perfectly fine, Diane. Okay. I don't know what you're worried about. Uh, if he falls, he falls, you know. He's a tough little guy. Aren't you a tough little guy, Mr. Microphone? Yes, Mr. Microphone. It's... Oops. 8.05 a.m. Saturday. It's 8.31 a.m. I got myself a cup of coffee here, and I'm going to take me a sip. Saturday, August the 15th, 2020. I'm Bill. I'm Diane. It's... Ah, ham and eggs. They've been Diane. This is why Crappy we hate our cell phones. <laughs> You open it one time and it says 8.05 says, and then while you're sitting there staring at it, it changes to 8.31. Yes. Catch up. Unbelievable. Wow. Well, that was that seemed like a flourishy, a flurry of flourishness uh, beginning, to the, <laughs> beginning to the Bill and Diane show this week. So maybe we should just take a break now and be quiet. A moment of silence. Yeah. But only a moment because you know it's not very interesting to listen to. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's been a hectic week here in Lake Amphetamine because you know what? We're going. We're movers. We're shakers. We're getting things done. We're getting you know it's always one go go go. That's what we do, <laughs> right, Diane? <laughs> well, it seemed a little that way to me this week. Did it? Yeah, just because of work, being back to work after oh, right. a furlough. Man, that was. Uh, a little bit of a rough re-entry just because I had my furlough and then my partner Chris who had been taking over for me while I was on furlough then he went on his furlough his second furlough and so I had I had tickets galore to work and lots of stuff to do while he was gone but we also on Wednesday um interviewed magical strings for my first album project so that was also a little addition of go 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 to our week that i usually don't have that's right very enjoyable one might i add indeed it was indeed it was i've been really excited about this first album series i think it's really an incredible thing to interview people about their first album i i think that the idea just dropped in my head because of the stanley greenthal thing but now it feels like it was meant to be yay verily yeah phil was saying i think all musicians should be interviewed about their first album and i i think it it's because you know it's it's that launch off time you know, when I first started working at the University of Washington, the thing I loved about working around students, especially the graduate students, because that was my populace, was that it's it was kind of like that you're on the diving board, ready to dive into your the, the period of your life that is the most exciting and the most risky and, and all that. And as an older person, getting to participate in that, that enterprise 
is very enlivening and makes an older person feel like you're there even though you're not. And in a way, hearing people talk about their first albums takes you back to that that diving board time where they were where things were more at risk and and they didn't know whether things would work out or not. And it's just a lovely part of the arc of a story to me, I think. Sounds good. I don't have anything like that in my story, so my first album was not a launching off point of anything. And most, a lot of the people that I know in the music industry here locally did not, there was no bump. It was it was a good thing to get a recording that you could sell from the stage, but it wasn't like I got on a major label and was touring all over the world or, you know, got, it, you know. It didn't. But I don't think that that's part of the, the diving board story. You're just diving off into whatever. It doesn't mean that you have to dive off into success or no success. It's right. just, uh, for me, I just feel like it's the, uh, the time of a person's life when they're doing something that they really want to do. And it could be a success or not. Yeah. But it's, a, it's an exciting time of your life, no matter what. Definitely. Definitely. And it's funny to listen to, you know, to Tim and to and to uh, Phil and Pam talking about how, yeah, it was just this little hole in the wall kind of studio, you know. There wasn't really much, you know, it wasn't really that grandiose a place or anything like that, you know. And these these people that were just starting out, it's like everybody's story was at a at a kind of a beginning stage. And when I think about recording my first CD at David Lang's, it was his garage in Tacoma, you know. There was this tiny little space which had, you know, the big room was the control room, and then it had one booth, soundproof booth, where everything had to happen. And it wasn't that big a space. But I just think that there's something about that first album because you're basically committing to something, right? You know, Right. Because you have Once to it's commit. Down, it's, it's, that's why they call it a record, because it's set. Well, and you're committing to uh, the financial aspects of it because nobody does recording for free you know they no matter how inexpensively you might try to do it it's still an expense for the artist and usually at a time of your life where you have like two nickels to rub together so true that i just i don't know it's a very exciting thing to me i i really do think of um of the journey of a life and these different these different times that Things could have gone this way or that way, and I just think it's so cool. Yeah. And your first album, I mean, your first your first ever recording, you did by yourself. Yeah. The Lunatic Cafe. Yeah. And I love that album. Um, A lot of people did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't consider it an album. I consider it a tape that I, like a mixtape that I of this weird stuff that I was doing at that time. But I was glad to have something to sell because that was what occurred to me uh, once I started going to the Tuesday Night Open Mic. Uh, I was like, well, there's a lot of audience because in those days there was a lot of audience there. It wasn't just players playing for each other. Oh, which, yeah, that is very true. Which is, is what a lot of open true. mics have become over the years and it's not a bad thing. But uh, And so the idea of having something there that people could take home just seemed to make sense, you know. And I don't know. I don't think anybody was doing it 
I remember Cat and Steve did did their their cassette came out about the same time that the Lunatic Cafe did. But there was only a couple of things sitting up there at the front desk where you sat that people could sell. You know, the amount of material on the Lunatic Cafe. I mean, it was a sixty-minute cassette, both sides. Wasn't it a sixty? I think it was a sixty. It wasn't a ninety. Um, it's a lot of material for five bucks, which is what we charged. Five bucks. Yeah, and Stephen Katz, I think, had even more material on it, and it was better recording. But the right at the light, I felt a lot better about because it's it was an actual live recording from a concert. You know, there was some live stuff on the Lunatic Cafe, but most of it was done with my little four-track cassette deck, and it was just bad recording quality. It was just like, you know, it seemed like a a collection of accidents that I had kind of gathered into a group to to put out so that I'd have something, you know. So that's what the the early part of my career has this quality, in my memory, has this quality of desperation to it. Like Phobia Rogues, my first album, I think about it in terms of the mistakes I made. I don't think about it in terms of where it got me or... But it did. It's, it's something that people had and people you know, got to know my songs through that recording. And I'm glad of that. But I, can't, I can barely listen to that album myself. And I was trying to cut corners. And I, was trying, I had an idea that I wanted it to sound acoustic. Or it sounded like I wanted it to sound like I sound when I play. And I, you know, I should have just done a live album. I mean, what was I thinking? Why would I spend all the money on studio time to try and capture a live sound when I could have just had my buddies, Tim and Roland, like it right at the light, take my four track, hook a couple of extra microphones up on stage and get a pristine board mix, you know. It was funny that you say that because when I was looking at, uh, in my cleanup, I was looking at the various albums Uh that you had and one of them was not wrapped up, the Raise Your Heart album. And I read what you had written in there, and it was talking about how you had been trying to struggle about whether you should have other musicians on. And I thought, man, this happens to you every single time. Every single time. Every single time. It's always been that way because I love live albums so much. And the touchstone for me of a live performance was Harry Chapin. Uh, at Whitworth in the late 70s and then again at the Spokane Opera House Um, and it was just him and his guitar and it was two of the most amazing concerts I've ever been part of and so that's what I felt like I wanted if you can capture that feeling in a recording which I think Harry Chapin does pretty well in Greatest Stories Live although it wasn't that isn't him solo that's with his band Um, that's the most amazing thing the limelighters that live album that we both had when we were kids hey lily 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 hey lily lily you know the way it gets going and the 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 way they can the way they manipulate the mood and the feel in the audience in the room in the moment that whole phenomenon the peter paul and mary's live album is unbelievably great uh you know so uh, that that whole capturing that i think is more important than you know, I mean, the, the studio album was, was in, when I was coming up, it was to try and get airplay. And trying to break into some kind of thing just never felt right to me. 
I feel like this is my chance to capture what I do. Not to try and get somewhere that I'm not, you know, by dressing this up, you know. So that's always been the thing. Is the, the, the struggle between representing what I sound like and trying to further my career, yeah. you know, by doing something that is at best aspirational and at worst, you know, not a good representation, you know. Um, and, it, you know, so I... There was always that identity piece in making a record all the way up to Night Sky, uh, the most recent one, is that what do you want to do? How do you, what are you trying to achieve here? And what I have learned is that what I am trying to achieve in making a record, record is this is what these songs sound like. That's it. Nothing more. That's why I go back to those Pete Seeger records that I grew up with because that was just him with his banjo and his guitar and one big microphone in a big old recording studio all by himself. And the engineer was in the other room. And he just did whatever. And they recorded all of it. They rolled tape through all of it. And then they just pulled out the songs and strung them together. And there's your album. It's done in a day. You know? He could record, you know, three albums in a week. Pete Seeger could. That's why he's got all those Folkways albums that he did where he's talking, where it's like this research project of all these different strands of music. He could record an album in a day in those days because it was just him. And he knew the music. So, I don't know. I'm old. I got old ideas. <laughs> but I, did not, I, I didn't know how to get, do the promotion thing. So when I felt like I was in that space, I felt very insecure. Yeah. And I think that is what I hear when I listen back to Phobia Rooms. Yeah. Gravity less so because I had money. For a minute, you know, and I thought I'm just going to throw everything I got at this one, just just once. I just want to throw everything I got at it, and I really became more involved in the creative side, and I rehearsed with a band, and I, you know, I took it more seriously. Uh, I couldn't afford that on Phobia Robes, so I was I should have done something a lot simpler than I did. What what it ended up being, it sounds simple, but it isn't. Because I tr there was this journey that I had to travel in every song of wanting it to sound better than it does and then having to settle for what it sounds like. But see, that's the thing that's interesting about well, interviewing it, I guess, musicians. I guess it would make an interesting story to talk about Phobia Robes because of how disappointed I have been for the last, you know, since 1986 when I finished that recording because it came out as a cassette uh, a couple of years before it came out on CD. But I guess what I'm saying is that everybody's, you're, you're basically going to a period of time where somebody is making decisions and, and it's just a, it's a fascinating time. It is whenever, a fascinating time. Whenever anybody is in that stage. But as the person who was doing it, who was living it, you know, you, what you remember are the feelings that you had at the time. Yeah. And it was a very insecure uh situation for me right at the light was not right at the light was you know because when i'm on stage performing i got it yeah i got this you know even on a bad night i got it but trying to sell myself into a marketplace of any kind other than a room full of people i don't got i don't got that 
and I never have had it, and I don't really want it. Pardon me, I'm going to have another drink of coffee. <laughs> it never seemed like, whenever I played in that area, you boy. it always felt That's good coffee. like I was trying to do something that I didn't truly believe in. You know, What I believe in is the songs I've written and what I can, the interaction that I can have with an audience. I believe that I've got that, that I possess that talent. But to, you know... Uh, conquer the world on some kind of other level, which was always the dream in those years, uh, I was never comfortable with. And it wasn't until I stopped doing that in a big way, which happened when we moved to the Menhow, that I really found my voice, I think, or my uh, Well, and don't pleasure. you think that because what the the reality of being a successful musician is is that you travel all the time and And that was what was becoming clear to me at that time part of my journey was realizing that I didn't like to travel yeah and so all these thoughts that I had had my entire life up to that point about making my living playing my songs was a bad idea you know that was a that was a rude awakening for me uh, that spanned many years uh, because I you know I tried to push past it in the way I thought I was supposed to, because I wasn't like I wasn't, it wasn't like I didn't get any encouragement. I was getting all kinds of encouragement, but most of the encouragement I was getting was about doing more on the business side so that I could go farther, play better rooms, get better gigs, you know. Well, um, I would say that... Get distribution for my recordings, get representation, get get an agent that could book me even more and, you know, be on the road, you know, 250, 300 days a year, like the people who were making a living. But I would say that several of my favorite musicians, you being one of them, they all came to the same conclusion. Yeah. You know? But at the time that you're going through it, if you're not doing that, then I feel like you're not perceived as being a real... Yeah. That you're really not doing it. Well, because, that, you know, I'm, I got my, my safety net, my day job, you know, there yeah. it's... And I'm just doing this. It's just a hobby, you know. And I don't. That that was a tough thing to uh, to internalize, also, because I did not feel that way in my life. I knew that the music that I was doing, the writing that I was doing, was the most important thing I was doing. This is why I was here, and the jobs that I had were the things that I did to pay the rent or to make this other thing possible. I had a job so that I could do my work. Well, I would say that that was the same story arc of several people that I know and love and love their music, Neil Woodall being one of them. Yeah. He had the same experience. It described the same thing. Yeah. And I would say that music is his life. I would agree. But he basically thought, I'm not willing to do what I have to do to... Yeah. To... Yeah, I don't Get know. I've broader... never talked to, to Neil about uh, about his story in coming to terms with that. But I, you know, and I, in my life, I had never come to terms with anything. You know, this was a come, having to come to terms with a vision that I had that I had of my life, and to and to come to the conclusion over some years that that was not not going to work out. I was in all of that was a new experience, uh, that whole thing. So encompassing probably 
all of phobia robes and, and gravity was this idea that I was supposed to be pushing further into a marketplace of something so that I could make a living, you know. And, you know, some sometime around the time that I was making Lifelike uh, and that certainly when Lifelike came out, I had dropped that. And then there was probably a couple of three years of, why am I telling you this story now? This is the biggest tangent, I'm sorry. Um, two or three, I like tangents. Two or three years of depression around that, yeah. around having to give it up, around realizing that I couldn't do what I I told myself I had to do with my life because that was that was the big vision collapsing. So anyway, but that but but then finding out that I was still playing music afterwards and kind of realizing, well, I'm still doing this. And look, I just wrote another song. What, so why am I still doing this if I can't do, if, you know, if the vision, the dream is dead? So what the hell? And that's when I started realizing, well, it, the dream was never the important thing. You know, when you come right down to what, how this, how you experience music in your body and how you have since you were a little tiny kid, you know, singing with your dad, you know, it's a way deeper thing than other people's perceptions of your level of success. So just play music. Well, one of the things that always occurs to me when I hear your story or or think of my own, I mean, I'm not a musician, but when I got to the diving board and dived off, <laughs> dove off, whatever you... Dived. Dived. I, I believe dived. it is dived. <laughs> Dived. Yeah. When, when I, I had a lot of ideas about what my life was going to be, and it it wasn't. Yeah. Everybody goes through so, it. That, I think. So I feel like that's part of uh, some some people. They take the dive, and it really was exactly what they had hoped. Right. But but I would say that all of the people who have success in that uh, are struggling with a different form of. Yeah, and, uh, and it never ends up looking like they imagined. Of the the vision being different, yeah, because the reality versus the what we dream of when we're kids is very different right i mean i'm at a pace now where i feel like the luckiest thing that ever happened to me is that i did not get more of the kind of attention i was seeking in those early years if phobia robes had taken off i would have really been screwed up by that because i wouldn't have been thinking about the songs i would have been thinking about the album which is what I got stuck in when I was making that album. I wasn't thinking about the songs. Yeah. And I certainly wasn't thinking about my performances. I, that's some of the weakest perf performances on my part are on that record. That's why I can't stand listening to it. Because my voice, I'm barely there in the room. The, my vocal was the absolute last thing I paid attention to and gave the least amount of importance to. It was all about the other instruments because I had the suddenly I was in the studio. I can do what I want. I can have other people coming in and play. So I paid all the attention to those things. Yeah. None of them to my own guitar pl playing or my own singing. Which is like, I look at that now. I'm like, I'm, you know, how could I have been su such an idiot? 
Well, and when we were talking, when you first said that your first album experience wasn't the same as some of these, uh, the Stanley Greenthal had exactly that experience. The very first album that I did the first album project about was Stanley Greenthal's... Well, his sounds great, though. Songs for the Journey. But, but what I'm saying is that he also came to the conclusion, you know, I don't like traveling, I'm not oh, really into okay. this, um, and he ended up his what he does is plays music for weddings and yeah. some concerts and and uh, just I think that you it's the story of a lifetime of what you envision and what the reality of that vision really is and how you adjust. Right. I mean, I think that a, everybody there's a journey, goes through that. There's a there's a, a journey with your own ego that because in those when I when I moved to the Menhow Valley partly it was to hide from what I had aspired to because yeah. I had failed because I had failed at what I was aspiring to do I wanted to go somewhere where I didn't have to see those people and be in that milieu and stuff like that and kind of lick my wounds and start a different kind of life because this hadn't worked out. So that's what I what it felt like when I was moving to the Methow was I was starting a new life. I was doing it deliberately. I was, you know, putting away childish things and, you know, and blah blah blah. But and so you, know, you don't you're no good at it until you're on the backside of it looking back at it and you can see the whole arc. Exactly. You know, as you're experiencing it, you just feel like you're just tripping over your own feet every day all day. And you're embarrassed. Uh, but that's uh, I what couldn't I... believe that I was giving up what I was giving up because I felt like I was I wrote good songs. So the only other thing we I could think of to do you write good was to try to sell my songs to somebody else, and that didn't feel right either. Yeah. So what am I supposed to do with these songs? What is my mission in life? Why am I here? You know, uh, I felt like I was cheating my gift on some level so this was a a soul deep uh identity crisis the story of my first album is a different kind of story but it's true i mean i'm sure there's that that aspect is in everybody's story um, and yet the the first album uh i mean just as a project hearing the stories that's the thing that's so fascinating is every it's doesn't have to have been a success <laughs> yeah. it's it's what because like stanley greenthal's songs for the journey i don't know you know i'm sure he's sold a lot to um to people at concerts and all that but oh my god it's it was such never, a it was never not on cassette and he never put it out as a cd no yeah. it was always just a cassette yeah. and and the whole idea when when phobia robes came out was that it was intended as to be my first CD, but I couldn't afford to manufacture CDs. Yeah. So I went with cassettes because they were cheaper, and I couldn't afford to do uh, the CD thing. And then after my dad died, and I had a little bit of money, and then I could afford to put it as a CD. Well, that's that's why it's so interesting to talk to different people to realize how, because back then it was such an expensive proposition yeah. for you to do. Yeah. 
But in any event, I just, I have so enjoyed it. I, I wish I could yeah. do one every month. I'm actually thinking, I, I had talked um, to you and, and actually to Jim Page about the possibility of doing some sort of Facebook page about it. Just having, um, not only doing a little interview with people, but also uh, playing a couple of the songs from their first album. Because I think that that would be a an interesting project to have after I retire, which will not be too long from now. I think that's definitely something that you should do. And there's no reason why we cannot interview people. Just because you can't write the article yeah. you know, one a month doesn't mean we can't start stockpiling some interviews. Um, well, the interesting thing about doing this at this stage of a life is that it's a long time ago for most people from yeah. their first album, but yeah. they still remember what was happening. And it's like, uh, for me, it's like listening to somebody tell any story from their life. As you get older, the the story gets more and more interesting because you've lived more of your life. Yeah. Just as you were saying, you know, like I read one time that about life being like a tapestry and that you you were weaving these threads in and and you don't see the pattern until you've lived yeah, because you're up close you're, yeah you're, you're laying down each color and doing each thing day to day it's like when you it's like uh watching your kids grow up you don't yeah. notice it you don't notice how much somebody's grown until somebody else comes into the room and, oh my god you know well and especially because let's say that you're weaving that tapestry and for some reason you're weaving in black and you're going, I don't, what, why am I weaving in this color? Yuck, you know? But in the end, it's it's contrasting or it's doing something for the whole mm-hmm. uh, tapestry. So, so at this point of everybody's lives, when I'm interviewing them about their first album, they've pretty much seen where that is going and yeah. what what they may have envisioned didn't come true or did come true or came true in a different way. But, um, I don't, I don't, I shouldn't even say this because I've only interviewed three people so far about this. Well, I, um, I, I, I can mean, imagine four. everybody second guesses their work. Um, you know, for me, man, if I was, if I could talk to my 28 year old self, I would say, think about the Pete Seeger records. Yeah. Think about the Jim Page records that I had at that point in my life, which was just Jim and his guitar, man. Yeah. You know, you could I could have I could have recorded my entire album in eight hours instead of taking eight weeks or eight months or something like that, you know, to do it and struggling with the financial aspect of it the whole time and so you know, what are you trying to do, Bill? You're trying to make a record of your work. Yeah. You're trying to create a record of your work. You know, you're not trying to create a record of someone else's arrangements of your work. You're trying to create a record of your work. So just go in there and do your work. You know? Well, I'm sure glad you did all of them because well, I, I am love too. the I, I love too. your albums. And, and the and journey when I li- you know, I can't stand listening to Phobia Robes, but if I hear something from it, it's like this, you know, it's become kind of like a, a, a whimsical, humorous story from my youth or something that I can tell people about how, what a screwed up guy I was when I was trying to make that record and yada, yada, yada. 
understand. They, it's it's not, it's easy to tell the story from the perspective of somebody who does not feel screwed up that way anymore. But it was harder to to experience it and then to not have to not have established the next phase, the perspective on all of that. You know, and it wasn't uh, for some years after moving to the Manhattan Valley that I actually started to get that kind of real perspective. Well, I think about what what different albums mean to me and certainly i mean i know you just think of lunatic cafe as just this little toss-off thing but that meant something to me and it meant a lot to a lot of people i remember when we talked about it before the people said i love the lunatic cafe you know whatever your envisionment of is as an as the artist what it means to the people who are in the audience you never know and for example i know that stanley uh greenthal knows that i loved his music but for me to come out of the blue like 40 years later and say hey did you ever have that songs for the journey made into a cd i mean it's that importance to me that that album held and I always, uh, when I think about the muse, so to speak, I always think, you don't know what, why you had the talent. It may have been to inspire one person. You know, this is my little fantasy about the world. You know? Oh, yeah. That, that it isn't just what you are doing, but it may be inspiring somebody else that you may not even meet. Yeah. That someday somebody does something and says it was all because I listened to that thing. Right. Or it could be that it gives someone hope in a way that you did not anticipate just by expressing something that they needed to have expressed or whatever. So I say here's to all those first albums. Yay! And along Speaking those lines, of which. Yes. Yeah. Since... Since Magical Strings was our interview um, this week, and I, I went up to band camp and got, I didn't even know that they, because Springtide has been out of publication for a while. Yeah. It was a vinyl album when, when I first had it, and uh, so... On Flying Fish. On Flying Fish album. Yeah. And so... Uh, I didn't think that they even had the the springtide available anymore, but they had it on Bandcamp. Sure. So I went up and and got the album, and uh, man, just blast from that particular. I, the thing that's so interesting is when you listen to an album you haven't heard in a very very long time, but it had great meaning for you. And this album had great meaning for me because this was my jumping off point into victory music and all that was going to, uh, I found out it was tower records on fifth Avenue. And because I was looking for a Jim page album, finding the magical strings and just buying it on a whim because it looked cool. It was in the local music section. So I remember that tower records too. It had a great local section. So I when, actually had music there for a while. So when I was uh, when I was listening to it, I instantly it's music can be like a time like a time machine. Like you can feel yeah. 
you could see yourself putting it on the turntable. You can think about the surroundings that you had. It's like when I was talking about the Seekers last week. There's a yeah. smell. I have a smell that I can remember in my mind. Yeah, it takes you. The, it's a time machine, it man. Is. Exactly. And and because that was a jumping off time in my life too, where I was basically turning my back on the things that didn't work out for me and going into something that was a complete risk at the time, which was, you know, following this victory music uh, thread. Uh, it hadn't approached yet, but, but this was the start of that. It was just the very beginning prelude. And I just, I just thought, oh my God, I love this so much. I had never heard these instruments in concert together. I just thought it was amazing and yeah. um i will yeah I, I was trying to remember when we were talking to pam and phil i was trying to remember when did when was the first time i heard a hammer dulcimer and i think it was cat playing it yeah yeah uh, i think it was cat at an open mic well and i had never heard and then the, dale blindheim also played tanya you know it was people at the antique that i heard and that's where i first heard and then connie also played hammer dulcimer well, I have to say that I had heard the hammer dulcimer before, but did not know it, because. Oh yeah, I may have heard it before. I I took the ferry boat, and uh, I remember Steve was playing, just Steve, hmm. um, although I did not know who he was at that time. But I remember hearing that and thinking, "Oh, that's beautiful," but I didn't see it, or I mean, it was just sort of something in the background, you know. But when I listen to magical strings especially the harp and the the hammer dulcimer together there's something so gorgeous about the concert of those two intertwined together the sound is just so gorgeous well, let's hear some yeah Thank you. 
Thank you.